There is no such thing as Toby Haydoke's Who's Round. Uh, well, uh, I think you'll find there is, actually. Uh, excuse the quality, ladies and gentlemen, because I am talking to someone in the United States of America via the miracle of Skype. So I'm going to ask him who he is and why I'm talking to him about Doctor Who. Well, my name is Roger Jerome, and I've been over in the United States since 1989, more or less solidly, which meant I couldn't vote in the Brexit vote. <laughs> uh, damn it. But uh, <laughs> anyway... Um, and uh, Doctor Who, it, you mention it in America and people go weak at the knees, which is very odd, um, considering it was just a kid's program and a bit cheesy in some of its effects in the early days. But over here, it's like you, you, you were in better than Downton Abbey. It's better than being in Downton Abbey. Well, I'm glad people, to hear that. It's a, it, 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 it's a great cult. You know, um, and there are clubs and people wear T-shirts and they have conventions. And um, I got involved because I had known a fellow called John Davis in Birmingham, where I went to university. And uh, he was in the same production as I was, a death of a salesman in a community, th or amateur theatre, we call it, don't we, in England, production of um, Death of a Salesman. And um, we, we, I suppose I kept in touch. As an actor, you, you've got to burnish polish your contacts as it were and he was it was then working for the bbc in broad street birmingham and then pebble lane i think and then of course he came down to london and was doing this so i was involved in this small part of a cheerleader and um it was about a week, I think, uh, the engagement. I've still, funnily enough, I've still got the pay slip. I kept it because it was $37.80, I think, uh, for the episode. And um, we rehearsed somewhere in uh, West Acton, um, West London, and then did it. It was all live, you know, and it was over in a flash. And um, there we are. And it's so revered over here. I did collect, I went round the waste paper baskets after the shooting of the episode because I thought, I worked at a college at the time running a theatre department at what was then the South Bank Polytechnic and um, uh, I thought these might be useful to show students how to write a shooting script and so on. I picked up about six or eight of them and they eventually I ended up with just one left over the years. And I brought it with me when I first came to America and gave it to the woman that I was staying with. And it was as if I'd given her a million dollars. <laughs> the script, a script from Doctor Who, rescued from the waste paper basket. And um, she loved it, Barbara, and uh, was, you know, sort of blown away by it. And uh, so that was that. And uh, I, I, by then more or less packed up being an actor. I was, as I say, working uh, in, a, in a college. And um, uh, so Doctor Who is then on the resume, and I, it's things like I, IMDb, say, Roger Jerome, famous for being in. <laughs> you know, that, I love that phrase, you know, famous for being in something, and when you're a more or less a walk-on. I only had, I think, one or two scenes. And um, I've got the sound recording of it, but of course it is this one of these mysteriously lost 
episodes of Macro Terror. Yeah. People were very nice on it. My main member, the one I love telling, the little um, anecdote I love telling, is in the uh, rehearsal room while uh, cough breaks, the bloke who played the chief Dalek, he had a triple name, something like John Kennedy Martin oh, or John, something like that. John Scott Martin. Is that you? John jo- Scott Martin, yeah. there we go. He was a small guy because he had to fit into the bloody Dalek thing and uh, machine. And he spent hours bitching and complaining um, during coffee breaks that the BBC would never let him audition for any other roles because, uh, you know, perhaps he was uh, he was a small guy and uh, they wanted him as a Dalek or something. But he felt very bitter uh, at the time anyway that he, he wasn't allowed to try out for other things. And um, that always struck me as quite funny in that he was the most famous <laughs> monster voice in... In, uh, you know, I used to go around schools as a, a teacher education, for instance, and um, the kids all doing their exterminate thing in the playgrounds. And uh, there he was, this famous model uh, uh, for them. But nobody ever saw him, of course. No. Uh, as far as I know. Is he still alive? He's, you know, he's not, sadly. He's not. Um, and and he, never, he never stopped playing the Daleks, to be fair. <laughs> he kept going. But, but uh, to be cut... He was very good at and to be typecast is to be cast, which as an actor is, uh, is uh, you know, it's good to be working, isn't it? Uh, yeah, of course, uh, in the end. Well, yeah, well, it is, of course, but no, actors are never satisfied with anything, it, it seems to me. Most of them aren't. They're always, you know, moaning. I saw a lovely programme the other day, Tea with the Dames. Oh, yes. There was a, a little, Roger Michel made a, a movie with the four dame, dames having tea, I think, at Joan Plowright's cottage or country house and um they were all moaning about that they don't get enough work and you know that judy dench gets all the best parts and sort of you know actors are never satisfied although it sounds like you are because you're doing so many different things good idea well i think you, you I, I, but i think you're right i think an actor is always aiming for that thing that they're not doing um yeah. uh, I, I think it's part yeah. it's, it's it's part of the nature of the job i think um uh, yes, yes, and, and I, but um, it's 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 always satisfying, isn't it, when you see somebody like Judy Dench or Maggie Smith saying that they're not particularly happy with the state of their career. Yes, <laughs> you think even even that even at that level, they're they're sort of still, um, you know, want there's there's this yeah, I don't know what's that Browning thing, a man's reach should exceed his grasp. Um, yeah, everybody wants something better. I mean, when you get cast as and, and that was one of my downfalls, actually, in the theatre. I was always moaning and, you know, dissatisfied that I hadn't got cast in this role and I turned that show down because of this and that and the other. And um, I think the lesson is they asked the dames what would they advise their younger selves from their advanced age now. And Maggie Smith said, when in doubt, don't. <laughs> oh, really? Very good. Um, but I mean, if I was advising myself, it would be don't so don't you know assume that you can always get the best. Accept what you're given most of the time. And I made a lot of um, you know rash sort of decisions in in that sort of way. I wish I could go back in many ways. Wouldn't that be nice? Yeah, well, that's and, and make, the right, make the right decision. What I thought was the right decision, anyway. H- hindsight yeah. is hindsight is very wise, isn't it? But. Uh... Yeah, 2020, they say. So so what had inspired you in the... What was your background, Roger? What had inspired you to go into acting in the first place? Well, I grew up in a little 
not a little town, of the county town of Buckinghamshire called Aylesbury. And um, they, uh, if you studied French for A-level, you had to be in the French play. Um, the teacher always got the A-level French t students to do a play in French. And uh, I did, and it was a comedy, and I just pulled out of faces, and people said, oh, you were so good. And, um, I mean, there must have been something uh, else there. And there was a, then there was a, 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 lo a sort of a group, an amateur group that used to come round Buckinghamshire, based in Prince's Risborough, called the Riverside Players. You wouldn't believe it, they're still going. And they used to go to different village halls in a week, and do a Shakespeare play, and uh, they were short of a Mercutio, and I filled in, and I loved all the fighting and those sword sword play, and it really lit something up inside me. I stayed with them for several years, uh, but then I went to Rada, and um, did quite well there, and uh, then had about five years. I was out of work for only. 13 weeks in five years. Looking back, it was wonderful. But I never had any money, you know. Um, no. At those times, you, actors couldn't get insurance, they couldn't get a mortgage, they couldn't get uh, afford a car. And uh, I got to the age of 29 and thought, uh, I'm a graduate here, qualified teacher, and I looked at the basic teacher's salary, which was like £1,830 a year, and it was more than I'd earned, having toured the whole of Britain for a year in Beyond the Fringe. And uh, Donald Albury paid us 30, 30 quid a, a week. Um, we were filling the Opera House Manchester, two and a half thousand people, uh, eight, eight performances a week. Imagine the receipts. <laughs> and we were, getting 30 quid, we were getting 30 quid a week, the four of us. That's and, crazy. Um, so, uh, and, you know, I had a son and I was married and stuff. And so I decided to go to leave and, and take up teaching and which I basically did for the next 20, 20 years. So, um, but I, you know, I, I, I really enjoyed it. I, I took it very seriously. I do see acting as a craft, you know, that needs to be worked at. And um, I do think Amer American actor training is so pathetic. I've taught in several universities over here and compared to RADA, you know, which is a sort of small C Catholic education where you do a bit of everything. Commedia dell'arte, Nye, and all the rest of it. Whereas in America, they're so precious. And the one thing, I, I've directed a few plays over here and been in several. Um, I can't stand American actors. The, the one thing, I don't know if it's, you tell me if it's, this is in England now. But if a director tells an actor how to say a line, they practically have a, a, a foaming fit. Don't give me a line reading. I, I refuse to accept a line reading. Ooh. Well, I mean, if if you're working with John Gielgud at Stratford, as I did, and he coached some of the small roles, you know, you'll have John Gielgud tell you how to say a line any day of the week in Shakespeare because he knows how to do it, and it's a craft, and it's like doing opera, you know. Um, you, you can be coached by the great, uh, whereas in America, John Gielgud wouldn't get far, you know, trying to coach, um, although he's supposed to have coached Marlon Brando a bit in Julius Caesar, but... Um, no, uh, so it, it's been in my um, uh, DNA, I suppose. And then over here, I took up acting again uh, for a while. Um, and also I devised, a bit like you, I suppose, I devised some one-man shows. And I did those around schools and colleges. 
and art centres and stuff. So I suppose I like showing off and <laughs> um, uh, pretending, all, all that sort of stuff. But the other thing that gives me the willies is um, when um, I heard Lynn Redgrave interviewed about acting and uh, Larry King, who was a very famous interviewer over here, mm. I think he's still going, um, Larry King said to her, well, um, I mean, Lynn, you're, when you talk about acting, you're talking about pretending, really. And she nearly had a bit. She said, it's far more serious than that, Larry. And gave some long-winded definition of what she thought acting was. But I've also, I always thought it's to do with pretending. And, um, and it can be magnificent at its best. And uh, I, I love it. We, we spent a lot of money here, my second wife and I, um, going to theatre. Although the city we live in, which is Columbus, Ohio, is pretty awful. But there are some cities like Cincinnati or Cleveland in the same state that we're in where they do have quite good professional theatre. And uh, so there's plenty to see. But, um, you know, why is it the Brits get all the Oscars? It's because they're, I think their training is better. Uh, well, and They've got a little beat my... Yeah. Uh, well, well and, 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 you know, you, you trained at the best, as it were, RADA, um, so you must have felt, I, I would imagine, you know, this was the start of something, you must have been surrounded by all sorts of um, very exciting people, and, and, and it must have been, you know, you must have felt that you were, you know, having the best preparation possible when you, when you were beginning. Oh, yeah, I mean, I was very, I've got a scholarship there, and did some supply teaching that could keep me going. Yeah, Sarah Miles was in my group, um... Is she still alive? Do you yeah, know? she is, yeah. Oh, okay. Well, um, she was in my group, and uh, uh, Courtney and John Thorpe's one-term head, they were great sort of stars at RADA. They did very well. Ah, so... And Michael Williams was a, a little bit... But they, but Tom and Tom and John Thorpe were, you know, just a few... Because they used to have an intake every term at RADA, so it wasn't... I don't know what the system is now, but... Um, it was, uh, you know, so in one year there would be people, new, newcomers, in, freshers, I suppose, coming in every every term, and there's quite a turnover. A great friend of mine from RADA, he was there before I was, I still write to him, uh, is Charles Kay. Oh, wonderful um, actor. Who had a fabulous career. Yeah. But oh, also in my class was Terry Rigby. Great oh, yes. friend. Great he, friend. He also um, went to the States. Uh, yes, yes, he did, yes. Well, I met him in New York, you know, Joe. Um, he was in Ralph Fiennes' Hamlet on Broadway. And uh, he called everybody kid because he was like a brummy. And uh, well, I said, what's it like? I met him after uh, after the show. I didn't see Ralph Fiennes' Hamlet, but he was playing the ghost and the grave digger. Quite well-known role, yeah. I think, on yeah. Broadway. Amazing. And uh, he's also been there in The Homecoming. I think that's his first time in the States, and then in No Man's Land, he did that on Broadway. I don't think he ever lived over here, did he? Yeah, there's a, there's a very interesting book about him, um, uh, written after that, no. that, that he spent the past couple, the last couple of years of his career, sort of, he decamped and lived sort of fairly nomadically in the States, doing funny bits of theatre here and there. It's a really interesting book, actually. I, well, uh, Terry was, uh, I, it's weird that, I had no idea what you just told me, because um, I was thought, you know, I was one of his closest friends, um, we used to write to each other quite regularly, and um, he, because uh, he came from Birmingham, where I studied at college, university, and um, 
I never knew that. Yeah. Anyway, I saw him after Hamlet. I said, what's it like, Terry? You've made it. I said, let me ask you a question. Of course, this is the question you're never supposed to ask any actor. Uh, I said, you needn't tell me if you don't want to. What are you getting paid on Broadway for the ghost and the grave digger? Oh, he said. He said, I'm getting $800 a week. And my room costs me something like $620. Goodness I mean, me. you know, Ralph Fiennes was probably earning multiple thousands. And the ghost and the grave digger was subsisting on $800 a week in New York, which is nothing. Well, I can't... You know, not very... Not can't, at all. can't imagine what Voltimand was on then. Probably not an awful lot. Fortin Brass was begging in the streets, poor love. Um, I should think he would be. be he'd be homeless, yes, sitting, living in the street. Voltimand, that's an interesting thing. Um, there was an actor who married Cherry Morris, Michael... Oh, I've gone right. Wrong on his, his... Up in Stratford. And he was cast as Voltimand in Hamlet. And then... Peter, Peter, God, names are going. The director, not Peter Hall, uh, but Peter, somebody else, um, cut Voltimand after three weeks rehearsal. That was a bit sad. Was that the one that you? Well, were, I think the one that you were in. He's a bit. Yeah, I was in Ham. Yeah, P- Peter Wood. Peter uh, Peter Woods directed that. That's it. You got it, Peter Wood. Yeah. Oh, what a bastard he was. Very <laughs> cruel man. He he directed by fear. He used to really put the wind up everybody. Until there was a, a very nice actor, also rather in my time, a guy called James Kerry, who oh, yes. his original name was James Munnerly. Um, he um, he was he was taken out of Jimmy, uh, you know, being so you know sort of the way that directors can get at people. Yeah. And apparently Jimmy took him on one side and said, "Do you want to?" In America, the phrase is, "Do you want to take it outside?" And uh, frightened him to death. And Peter Wood was as nice as pie to him <laughs> from then on. But, but uh, you know, some directors can be very um, nasty the way they direct, I think. My memories are, anyway. Some can be very nice. Michael Elliott was a smashing guy. I mean, he was so nice, such a nice man, thoughtful man. Well, he founded the Royal Exchange up here, so... Uh, and uh, I've worked, Absolutely. I've, I've worked with his daughter, who's, who's very good, uh, Marianne Elliott, uh, who directed uh, War, yes, War Horse. Going, I, I was disappointed to read that he'd separated from Rosalind Knight, who he was married to uh, when I was at Stratford, in 61, that was. But um, So, yeah, Rada, you know, was was OK, and, um, you know, there were all sorts of people. A lot of people you never heard of. A guy I keep in touch with, uh, doesn't do much acting, his son does, uh, but the, fi- the guy I was with is called, a guy called Brian Wright, I know, yeah. right I, I've exchanged letters with Brian Wright because he he did a Doctor Who at, at at some point. So I've never met him, but we have uh, we have exchanged letters uh, here and there. Yes, oh, it just shows it's a small world, isn't it? <laughs> it does. Um, yeah, would, but um, would, anyway, so Brian was there, and then uh, after Stratford, I went to Nottingham and had a terrific year there under Frank Dunlop and John Neville, and uh, then I went to Bristol and had. A year and a half there. Um, Val May was the director. Then I got that tour of Beyond the Fringe. Yeah, how did that and, come about? Because uh, that was that was uh, extraordinary for for the for the listener who might not know this. That you, when when it toured, the original cast of Dudley Moore and Peter Cook and uh, Jonathan Miller and Anna Bennett d- didn't do it, and you and actors like David Calderisi, who's also done a Doctor Who. Um, so you sort of you 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 took over and and became them and and did the tour. So how did that come about? Well, 
Well, uh, actually, uh, after they after the original four packed up, um, they were it was at the Mayfair Theatre, I think, and then there was a, a substitute cast with I think Robin Ray and took over and Joe Melia, I think. Oh, took great! Over. Yeah. So there was a London cast, but Donald Aubrey obviously uh, thought he could clean up, and he did. And what he did was he he put it on at the Bristol Old Vic. So it was out of the Bristol Old Vic that Peter French, uh, John Dolby who I think has recently died, um, and myself, and David Calderisi, uh, we were cast in that and then went on to over 26 weeks, earning 30, as I said before. <laughs> Neville Buswell took over from David Calderisi uh, halfway through, and we then went on to Coronation Street yeah. for years. Yeah. But, um, yeah, so uh, the interesting thing was we were sent to Aberdeen at a time when there was a what was it, cholera or some bloody disease had broken out and um, but Donald, and we thought it would be cancelled but Donald Albury said, no, you're going. So we went off to this plague-ridden city and um, it was empty the first three or four nights until the doctors uh, agreed that theatres and pubs could be opened and we got some good crowds towards the end. But um, no, it was a wonderful tour. We went to 26 cities and... Um, uh, you know, all over the place, and uh, I got to know England quite well that way. It's a good way to see the country. Um, I mean, but, but when you, t- yeah. I mean, when when you did that season at Stratford, you you d- you were in John Gielgud's Othello. Uh, was it Ian Absolutely. Ian Ian Bannon's Hamlet? Was it? And uh, yes, it was. Uh, and and uh, and actors like Ian Richardson well, were flying about. I mean, you you did some amazing actors you worked with early on. There, yes. Christopher Plummer's Richard the Third. Oh, the greatest! Great. Yeah. And his Benedict, his Benedict. Nice story about Benedict. Um, he, uh, Jimmy Carey, the same guy, uh, played the, the messenger at the end who comes on and says that much ado. It was uh, Plummer and Geraldine McQueen. Yeah. And um, Jimmy Carey came on. He said, my lord, your brother John is taken in flight and brought with armoured men back to Messina. But they developed through the, through the season, but he used to say Messina in a different way every night. He'd sometimes say Messina or Messina or Messina. He'd, he'd do it differently every night, you know, and, <laughs> and um, Plummer loved it and, and said, think no more of him, strike up pipers, and um, we'll divide, praise, divide, devise brave punishments for him. And that was it. On the last night, Jimmy came in, and <laughs> we were all agog. And he came and he said, my brother, my, my lord, your brother John is ten in flight and brought with armoured men back to, and paused, and we all leaned forward. He said, "Here, <laughs> they take place in the scene, and the whole bloody cast corpse." And Plummer couldn't speak. He loved it. I mean, he was—he's a—he's a very mischievous, used to be, very mischievous kind of person. I wrote him a fan letter about three years ago, saying, "Don't answer it. I just want to tell you, we adored you, we admired you, we were inspired by you." He was terrific. Oh, he really was. His Richard the Third was fabulous. That's good to hear. And, uh, oh, that, well, that, there was the breakout year of Vanessa Redgrave. She played um, Rosalind. Oh, of course, yeah. You know, if you like it. Yeah. So, yeah, it was good. Um, it, well, yeah, it was fabulous. And it, as it was formed, the Royal Shakespeare Company was formed that year. It used to be called the Shakespeare Memorial Theatre. Yeah. And it became the RSC that year. So I always say, when I want to show off, that I'm a founder member of the RSC. <laughs> the RSC. Which is... It's actually true, but um, oh, there was something else that, that really inspired me before I... Well, while I was at RADA, 
I used to try and make money supply teaching and babysitting. And I used to babysit for uh, um, Patrick Weimark. Oh, wow. Yeah. Wonderful and actor. Of course, was lovely, lovely, lovely woman. Alwyn Weimark. And uh, Pat Weimark, yeah. I used to live in Primrose Hill. So would you have babysat? Would you have babysat Jane Jane Weimark, who's uh, who's gone on to have not a bad career herself on British telly? Exactly. Well, she was she toured with uh, Jacoby, and she was Ophelia to his Hamlet, I think. Yeah. On tour, there were there were four kids. Um, The the there was two boys. Tristram he became an actor. Oh yes, yes. And and another one, and then Jane and Rowan. There was a girl called Rowan. I don't know what became of her. Is Jane Walmart still going? Yeah, yeah. She she was a regular in a show that was big over here called Midsummer Midsummer Murders for for quite a long time. Oh, playing, well, playing the leads, playing the leads' wife. Yeah, I didn't know. I've, I've never seen it. It's in all you know. It's quite popular over here as a sort of detective um, thing. Yeah, when John, yeah, I think when John Nettles was the lead, she was his. I mean, I say it's recently. I think any television program made in the last. 20 years is recent because because uh, I watch stuff that was made in the 60s. Yeah, I think Buffy the Vampire Slayer is new. Um but <laughs> that started yeah. 20 years ago. Um but yeah, she yeah. was she was in that for quite a while. She was in that for quite a while. Oh good. So uh, she's she's had a nice career. Good. Yeah. Yeah, it's it, it's I love the theatre, you know, Joe, and um it, it, I take great pleasure in seeing people do well. Uh and uh, but I do. Uh, I've become an American citizen now. I'm allowed to keep my British citizenship. Not that it was any bloody use during the Brexit vote. <laughs> but um, so what? What uh, took, what, it, took I, you, what? What was the what took you over to the states? What was the what was the appeal? Oh um, well, my first first marriage collapsed. Uh, first marriage collapsed, and I'd got some contacts in the states in West Virginia. I'd met them while they were over here. I did some um, sessions for them, a group of teachers in West Virginia. And um, I uh, I took up a contact. They said, if you ever want to come to the States, we can get you some sessions and lectures and stuff. And I thought, oh, good. And there's a guy, I don't know if you've ever heard of an actor called Barry Boys. No, no, I don't know Barry Boys. Well, yeah, he was at Nottingham very briefly while I was there in 1962. And he came over to America and got a job in a college and always there was a sort of template in my mind for what you could do if you were a British actor that came to America. And um, it's changed now, but it used to be true. I mean, actors would come over here and would be made a great fuss of and given, you know, positions in colleges and and so on. And um, it's changed now because uh, it's very difficult to get any kind of job in an American college. You've got to have a PhD before they'll look at you. And... Um, Anyway, Barry Boys had done that, and I thought, well, you know, I'll have a go. And, uh, you know, it, one thing led to another, and I taught him this uh, this college and that college, met people like Morris Daniels. Uh, do you know who he was? I don't, I'm afraid. He wasn't an actor. He was well. one of the big wheels in the RSC organisation. He was ah, like okay. a production manager. And... Um, uh, they used to call him Doris Manuels, not that he was gay or anything. But anyway, Morris, Morris had also come over here. And in Memphis, he, I got a good contact in Memphis. He was directing plays. And, uh, I, you know, I thought, well, maybe I can get something from him. But he was very protective of any contacts he had. But, um, you know, you, you follow whatever 
is in front of your nose and I got various residencies and, and then I got positions on the staff of different colleges and I've had, you know, had a inter an interesting time and, you know, mixed in with these one-man shows. So I became a bit of an expert on Dickens, which um, is one of my, used to be one of my uh, solo shows, various uh, um, various formats as Dickens, and um, uh, also Lewis Carroll and uh, King Arthur and so on and so forth. But, um, so, um, and I was quite surprised, Joe, that actually there's a, there's quite a lot of money spent on the arts, despite all the hand-wringing and everything. Each state has an arts council, and uh, the Ohio Arts Council is a particularly good one in that it subsidizes all sorts of stuff all over the states, the state. It's third in reputation to New York and California. And, um, you know, the, the theatre is not quite as popular as maybe visual art and so on. But, um, I mean, Columbus, you know, for all my complaining about it, it does have a good art gallery, it has an opera company, it has a ballet company and so on and so forth. So you can tap into these arts councils and, you know, get work if you can. And um, I've, en I've enjoyed it. And as I say, I met, met my lovely second wife here and uh, we now live in suburban bliss in my retirement, as it were. Yeah, it's um, it, but it, it's interesting seeing the difference, in my opinion, anyway, between the British tradition and the American tradition. Yeah, and uh, there's no doubt in my mind that, with very few exceptions, British drama schools, not just RADA, but obviously Central and Lambda and the others, um, you know, are streets ahead of. Um, American training establishments and there's so many you see because it's all tied in with academia so when somebody comes up to me and says my daughter wants to be an actress what have you any advice for her <laughs> you sometimes, I sometimes think don't but, um, <laughs> when, when in doubt don't but you know there's quite a a, a, a lot of openings for the, at colleges you go to you do a bachelor's degree in theatre and then if you're really keen you can do a postgraduate master's in theatre and I've taught on several of these courses in different colleges here and some you know some of the there's quite a lot of talent but there's a sort of rigid, it's still the leftover of the method. This thing that it's my role, I'll play it my way, I will say it how I want to say it. Don't you, Mr. Directors, tell me how to say my, my, it's my character. I know more about him than you do. That sort of thing. I mean, John Gilga just told us how to say lines. And, um, you know, on the whole, he was right. Well, I think the... uh, that was a great thing. The, the actor that, that thinks he knows it all, I think, is the actor that's lost because an actor should always be, I think, learning and trying to find new things to keep it alive. Um, sure. You know. Well, um, that, reminds me, that reminds me of our wonderful teacher, rather, Peter Barkworth. He was oh, a terrific teacher. What and, a wonderful uh, actor. actor yeah. Yeah, he's, I mean, he... he um, go on. Yeah, go on. I'd love to hear about Barkworth because he was a fantastic actor. Well, well he taught... He, he taught you know, several years of, at RADA and was in West End hits at the time. One was a roar like a dove. He was in that for about four years. And he used to share with us, you know, how he tried to keep the role alive. Four years in a, in a show, you know, is yeah. quite a challenge. 
to, to make it real, as if it's the first time you've said the bloody line, you know, when you've been in it for four years. And um, uh, it, it was that he used to give us all kinds of tips uh, about how to keep it fresh, you know, uh, that, that he used to try and help himself with. But he was a super actor. And um, in, in his limited, in his range, he was very good. But he was a terrific teacher. He, he really was. He, everybody who was in his classes, we learned so much from him. I've still got my notes from those classes um, uh, all those years ago. Oh, how I, wonderful. I kept them in a little file. And um, he, he was very good. Uh, but it's this thing of, um, in America, there's this strange sort of, they have, the, the other thing that I would say is they, they have gurus. They always have to have, you know, a, a guru like Sanford Meisner or um, who's the all sorts of latest ones. And, and um, you know, they're very gimmicky, I think, in their, in their uh, approach to acting in a way. I mean, the best American actors are terrific. Of course they are. And, um, in fact, I sometimes feel sorry for American actors and actresses when a Brit comes in and takes over the role. I sometimes wonder why Benedict Cumberbatch gets all these roles in Hollywood, and there's a bunch of super American actors. I don't know, you know, why particularly. It's all to do with agents and stuff. But, um, you know, uh, why, for instance, the wonderful Christian Bale would uh, have to be bulked up as Cheney. There's loads of Americans yes. who could have played him. I think. <laughs> I know. But um, I thought he was wonderful as it, and may very well get an Oscar for it. I don't know. He may well. But, um, well, well yeah. look, I've, I've taken up more of your time than I said I would, but my, 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 a couple of my colleagues won't uh, forgive me if I don't. Doctor Who is not the only television icon you cross paths with. You did Z Cars. Uh, uh, oh, a, 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 <laughs> I was in. Well, that was an even smaller role. Yeah, that was when Tristan, I used to be great friends with Tristan Devere Coles, but uh, he had a terrific career, actually. Um, and uh, he did this Zed Cars. I remember he, he, he put me in that just as a favour, I think. But uh, he, when I think of the show, the series he directed, but uh, he wrote, he's written a couple of little books and he's written his own, uh, his autobiography. Yeah. Well, but, look, um, well, look, I, I, I yeah. don't suppose, have you seen, because uh, the, the, there are things called telesnaps that exist from the Macro Terror and there's a very good one of you that's a sort of big, uh, a big close up um, uh, that's on, the, it's actually on the BBC website. I don't know if they've sent you any of the pictures because I know you've been talking to to Charles, haven't you? You sent him some pictures for the animation, because the Macro Terror has come yeah. to life. Yeah, I've got a, a couple of stills from it. Um, uh, this sort of close-ups, yeah. One close-up, yeah. yeah. I, I've got those, yeah. Was it, well, it's extraordinary, isn't it, that after all these years, something that's lost, they've got pictures, they've got the soundtrack, and now they're sort of putting it all together to, to, to resurrect it from the ashes. Yeah, absolutely. It's amazing. It's amazing. You've kindly donated your your time uh, for for free, and the listener doesn't pay for this. So we would like a charity of your choice to benefit from your time, Roger. So, what charity would you like the listener to donate to? Oh, is there a cancer charity? No, yeah, we've got a lot of people just say cancer research, and then people can, yeah, uh, can choose them. Yeah, yeah, brilliant. Yeah, I think so. And uh, I mean, we're talking about something you did. 50-odd years ago. So what is your message to the Doctor Who fans out there, Roger? Because, as, as you know, they are legion. <laughs> um, well, uh, what, what is my message? Uh, well, I don't know. Um, 
good luck. I don't, I don't know if I have a message here. Um, just uh, it, remember it used to be a children's episode. It was after the football results, wasn't it? Yeah. On a Saturday afternoon. Yeah. And um, uh, it used to be, and so it's, it's come a long way. <laughs> and uh, it's... Uh, and, and, well, you owe an awful lot to Doctor Who for the development of extraordinary sound recordings. I mean, the Stereophonic Radio Workshop was something that was um, set up for that, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. They played a key role. Yeah. yeah. Oh, well. Yeah, so, uh, yeah. Well, that's marvellous. I'm very grateful. Roger Jerome, thank you very much. That was brilliant. Well, thank you. Yeah, OK. That, well, that um, was great. Uh, well, for a, a couple of... A couple all, that, all that just go on and on. I mean, no. you, you, must, you, must, you must sort of have a very patient ear. No, I love it. This is... this the, re- the reason I do this podcast is because this is what, this is what I love doing. I love talking to... Uh, my thanks to Roger, all the way from America. Uh, his charity, well, he wasn't specific. He said cancer, we said cancer research. He sort of agreed, but I think in, in these cases, uh, any cancer charity that is close to your heart uh, or appropriate to or whatever um, will benefit if you have the means and inclination to give. So um, there'll be another one of these uh, soon. Thanks to Ian Atkins for doing all the hard work putting this out. Thanks to Roger Jerome, and uh, thanks from me to you for listening. Take care. From Big Finish Productions, The Third Doctor Adventures, Volume 5. Some sort of interference. Completely blew the TARDIS communication circuits. Twice. Great heavens. Doctor! Doctor! Are you in there? Doctor! Doctor! I do wish you paid just a little attention, Doctor. Well, I could say the same about you. Uh, Doctor! Liz! Professor Liz Shaw! Good to see you again. You too. Hello? I can hear you! Hear you all! Ah! (laughs) Uh, Sorry about that. Open fire! I have resumed command. Abort this launch. I repeat, abort this launch. Commander, planet Earth within broadcast attack range. Sorry, Private. I think I closed the door a little too quickly then. He'd probably think I'm off my head. You would be surprised what I believe, Concrete. He called them Primords. From Primordial, I presume. So you saw the Primords? That's what we're calling them. Primords. Stop it, you useless thing. Just stop it. I think we might need to broaden our definitions of what's possible. To think of all the money wasted feeding and clothing these monsters every week. I know what I heard. I wish I could say the same. Like someone or something has stolen the entire street. It said, help me, they're coming. They're going to kill us. Blimey. Fire at will! They keep saying it's for the greater good, for the good of the country, even. The country? There go my speakers. Big finish.
we love stories.